It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, January 21st, 2022. Friday vibes. Happy Friday here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. If you don't know me, I am, of course, host of this program. Also a Fox News contributor. I'll be on the TV set next week, early in the week from New York. Kennedy, Gutfeld, Outnumbered, and more. So I'll see you there on Fox News Channel. Also the political editor of townhall.com. Our website here at the show is guybensonshow.com. Everything related to the program is right there, including the free podcast every day. And I do want to thank our podcast listeners. We just learned that this past December that just ended, our our podcast numbers in December were more than double what they were the previous December. Just huge growth over the last year. And we are so grateful to every single one of you. And, of course, we want to keep that growth going across all aspects of this show. Tell your friends. Bring your family in. It's a big, happy family here at The Guy Benson Show. We'd love to have even more of you. Thank you so much. We're extremely grateful. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern live. Many ways to listen live, including through odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. In fact, I am broadcasting today from an Odyssey affiliate station. Talk Radio 1370 AM, the right choice in Austin, Texas. Here in the Lone Star State for a little birthday weekend for Adam. And some of his friends going to be a lot of fun. Always a great time in Texas. Love this city. Quirky, fun, great food, great drink, fun music. So uh, just delighted to be here and very thankful to 1370 AM for hosting the program here and allowing me to uh, commandeer one of their studios. Here's the lineup that we have for today's Friday edition of the show. Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. A Republican. We're here. We might as well talk to a Texas Republican. We will do so later this hour. Shannon Bream. She broke some of the news that really caused that NPR story to fall apart and involving the Supreme Court and a supposed flap about mask wearing and Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch. Well, Shannon reported that that was not true. And in very short order, the justices put out statements themselves. Believe it or not, there are still people absolutely clinging to the narrative and the journalist who initially reported what has now been denied by everyone involved she is sticking to her story we will ask shannon about all of that plus she will be anchoring fox news sunday this weekend so we'll see what's in store on that program katie mcfarland foreign policy expert longtime presidential age she's served in i believe four presidential administrations at this point she'll be here to break down and analyze what's happening with russia and ukraine Not just what President Biden has said this week, which muddied the waters and caused a great deal of confusion and consternation, but also what's Putin getting at? Is he really going to do this? And if so, then what? We'll put those questions to KT McFarland. And in our final hour, U.S. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, he will be here. Much to discuss with him, of course, involving the goings on in the U.S. Senate. 
over these last few days. So we are absolutely jam-packed on the show today. We begin, as we always do, with a Fox News alert and statistics on COVID. The official case count in the U.S., all in, 69.3 million cases over these last nearly, gosh, two years. In fact, Adam was showing me some photos from our honeymoon, which is two years ago. Part of that honeymoon was in Australia. And I distinctly remember the last day of the honeymoon. We were in the airport in Sydney. We were in one of the airline uh, lounges. I think it was like Air New Zealand Lounge. It was a United Partner Lounge, whatever it was. And they had the local news on in Australia. And they were reporting the first case confirmed in Australia of this novel coronavirus that originated in China. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a shame. Well, hopefully it won't be too bad. And maybe I'll never think of this, uh, this again. And here we are two years later. Little did we know at the time. That was like late January 2020. The death toll in the United States, Americans who have died with or of COVID, now 860,316. 860316. The Dow really struggling. You might even say tanking today. They were, we, we watched it actually yesterday. We watched it. It was a huge early surge on Wall Street. And then. The Dow ended in the red yesterday, just a big collapse yesterday, and that collapse has continued. The Dow currently down 423 points, trading at 34,291. I wanted to begin the show today by reading at some length from a CNN story that I think is interesting. CNN wrote a whole piece about how Democrats are extremely worried about the midterms and particularly the attitude and the position and the posture of the White House and the president leading into these midterms. I mean, it seems to be that the conventional wisdom, and not for no good reason, for many good reasons, is that the Republicans are going to win the midterm elections. Now, what that looks like, I don't know. The likelihood, I would say, the probability is they will win the House. That's a very light lift, given how tiny the majority is for the uh, for the House Democrats and what history looks like and and the rest of it. Now, is it a 2010, 2014 level blowout that's coming? Maybe. Maybe not. That'll depend over the next, you know, 10 months what we see. But the House, most people, I think, are guessing that it's gone. It's going to trade hands, which is why I think now you've seen, what is it, 28 House Democrats saying, you know, we're done. We're not going to seek re-election. That doesn't sound fun being in the minority. The Senate is another question. It's 50-50, of course, right now. The Democrats are trying to treat it like it's 60-40. It's exactly 50-50, and there are some really key Senate races shaping up all across the country. Pick up opportunities for both parties. We'll be covering those races closely here. If the Republicans end up having like a pretty solid to good night, I think there's a decent chance the Senate flips as well. And then some key governor races around the country that we'll be watching, of course, in this state, Texas, also Florida, swing states like Wisconsin. Uh, We'll have you covered on all of that. But the Democrats are saying behind the scenes to reporters, some anonymously, some not, is that the Biden White House is just inept and listless and not doing the sorts of things that are instilling any confidence in a party that's already sort of collectively wetting itself. And so I found this a story 
very enjoyable to read because the incompetence of this administration on foreign policy, whether it's Afghanistan or now what we're seeing with the comments in Russia, on domestic policy, just screwing up the testing and the messaging on COVID and all this stuff, the counterproductive attacks that the president and his defenders and his team launch on a regular basis, alienating people, just the the absolute disregard for the situation at the border, the terrible muddle that they've made on the economy, their messaging on, for example, inflation that's hurting a lot of people. It has been the gang that can't shoot straight. And the result is a president with an approval rating around 40 percent, which is a disaster. That is a disaster. Where with independence, the, the people who swing elections, right, if you have Republicans super fired up to vote, which they should be. Democrats may be a little bit disappointed. You see young people are not thrilled with the president. You see some of the key demos for Democrats seem, um, shall we say, less than enthusiastic, demoralized, perhaps. And then if you have the swing voters, independents, heavily opposed to the president's job performance and what he's doing and not impressed. Right? His, his number among independents is in the high 20s to low to mid 30s in almost every single one of these polls. I mean, these are the potential building blocks for a blowout. And all this is happening, and it seems like the incompetence is not just on substance, on policy, foreign policy, domestic policy, et cetera, but also on politics. This is a group of people obsessed with politics. They live and eat and breathe politics, 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 power, power, power all the time. And yet they're really bad at politics. Right. He wins the nomination. Biden does by being a moderate. He wins the presidency by saying, I'm going to do a few things like unify the country, move past this uh, virus and be a moderate. And then they get into office and they're acting like they're just constantly terrified. And the show is being dictated by the wing of the party that he beat in the primary. It's just so strange. And Chuck Schumer's out there in all of his infinite wisdom saying, you know what? Let's ignore what a few of my members are saying in a 50-50 Senate. Let's try to do all this stuff, even though they are insisting that they won't go along. Let's waste month after month of our precious single-party rule doing things that can't pass. And that's exactly what they've done. I mean, it is just so amazingly incompetent. I said this the other day. I'm actually grateful how incompetent they've been because a more competent Democratic Party controlling everything that they do, they could be doing a lot more damage, but they haven't been able to get out of their own way. So here's the CNN story. This is the wind-up to the story. And they start with an anecdotal lead. President Joe Biden spotted Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney on the White House campus last June and called out to the House Democratic campaign chair loudly enough for several other, for several others to hear, quote, I really want to talk to you about the races. He shouted a week later at the Cherry Festival in Traverse City, Michigan, Biden leaned into Senator Gary Peters, who's in charge of Democratic uh, Senate campaigns with the same promise. He's always cared most about Senate races, Biden told the Michigan Democrat, and he wanted to have a meeting an hour at least to talk about helping his party hold the chamber in 2022. Maloney's staff eagerly followed up. So did Peters. Then they followed up again. And again, seven months later, there are still no meetings on the books. 
So Biden's like, hey, I want to do this stuff. They're like, great, let's do it. Then crickets, nothing. Now, maybe part of it is they're not as keen on having Biden showing up on the stump everywhere anymore because, I mean, look, Stacey Abrams didn't want to be seen with him in Georgia on her signature bogus issue in her own state. The story goes on. They're not the only ones who've been left waiting. In three dozen exclusive interviews with CNN, top Democratic politicians, campaign officials, and operatives say the White House political operation is heading into the midterms unprepared and unresponsive to even basic requests for help or information. Mm. Can you feel the competence? Can you smell it? Biden advisors say that the president talks politics with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on a regular basis. But people familiar with both leaders say any campaign talk has been brief and Democratic leaders have significant concerns with the White House's approach to getting the president to break through. It's not just that Biden's approval ratings have tumbled. Those in charge of keeping Democrats in power doubt that Biden's team understands how to improve his political fate and with it theirs. So then they start quoting people. I like this paragraph. Senior Democrats, including some White House aides, describe a West Wing lacking both a political strategy and the discipline to execute one. Focus groups with voters are giving party operatives nightmares. I would love to see some of these focus groups as the Democratic focus group pollsters just turn white in the face as they hear these voters talk. Nightmares is the word used. Biden is coming across as old and absent, they say. Real and perceived fumbles play into deep fears that he's not up to the job and that Democrats are incompetent. Now, where would they get any idea like that? Huh. Few Americans can say what was in the massive bills Biden has signed, though many have heard about Democratic infighting and the failure in what he hasn't signed. Most Democrats in power still believe there's ample time for a turnaround, but several top operatives are already talking triage. They're fearful of discussing all of this publicly because they don't want to create more problems. But privately, they are petrified that a Republican majority would end Biden's agenda and swamp them with endless investigations and subpoenas. Probably sounds okay to a lot of you. I love that they're saying, oh, to be sure, there's still ample time for a turnaround. And by the way, I will just note that's true. Ten months is a long time. No counting of chickens. No complacency. No assumption that this is going to happen. It has to be made to happen by voters. But the fact that Democrats are saying, oh, well, we've got time to turn around, but they're already discussing triage. Who do they cut loose? Which races do they focus on and which ones do they give up on? And it's January. Eh, not a great sign for them. But they don't want to talk about it publicly on the record because that could cause more problems. But they're talking to CNN anyway, and they're publishing it, which will, I think, create like more suspicion. People looking around who's leaking, who's saying this stuff. The White House, CNN reports, has downplayed these complaints. Of course they have, which is probably not the correct response. The correct response would be they're right. We have a problem. We're changing strategy. But Biden doesn't seem interested in changing very much at all, as we learned at the press conference this week. So they're just going to chug and chug and chug right along on the course that looks like a course to electoral ruin for them. One thing I read in the story before we break, they said one of the criticisms 
is that the White House chief of staff, Ron Klain, hasn't pressured Biden to go out there and really unleash, really get more aggressive defending himself. Do they want him to call more people racists? What more can he do than scream about segregationists? There's just so much out of touch delusion right now. And it's to the benefit of basically anyone who opposes what this administration has been wreaking so far. Interesting stuff. And coming from CNN, too, that's got to hurt for the Democrats. We are just getting started from Austin, Texas today. It's the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We mentioned this yesterday briefly. There's an AP poll, Associated Press, national poll. Biden at 56% disapproval, as he is in basically all the polls right now. And they asked about the appetite of the public for Biden to run again in 2024. 28% say they hope he does. 28. Including less than half of Democrats. Only 28% of the public says they have a great deal of confidence that Biden can effectively run the White House. So it's it's not great out there. And their heir apparent is the vice president, who I think is, I mean, just politically awful. And I would say less electable if she's uh, if she's at the top of the ticket. And if they want to dislodge her from the heir apparent status, I don't know how they do that, because then you get into a whole bunch of very tricky territory for them when it comes to identity politics, right? She already is out there leaking that all of these criticisms of her are really just racism and sexism. That'll just be turned on blast. They'll go nuclear on that stuff to protect her position, her loyalists, her team, that sort of thing. Although the team isn't that loyal, people keep leaving. So they're in a tough spot over on the other side of the aisle from the GOP perspective. From the GOP perspective, though, only 27% of people want Trump to run again in the same poll, which is why I think... A lot of Republican voters ought to keep an open mind ahead of 2024. But first things first, win this year. That's the task at hand right now, right in front of us. Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, joins me right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back, coming to you live from Austin, Texas today. And Talk Radio 1370 AM, the right choice here. An Odyssey station. We're very, very pleased and thankful to be here. And I'm actually looking out the window of this studio, and there's a beautiful view of downtown Austin. It's always good to be in Texas, and when we are in Texas, we like to get at least one Texan on the show. 
And that Texan today is Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican from the Lone Star State, really the Houston area. Also author of the book Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage. Congressman, great to have you back and great to be in your state. Hey, great great to have you in our state, Guy. I'm, uh, I'm excited to get back. I was just up here in D.C. for the March for Life and uh, about to head back to Houston now. It's cold here. It is much, much too cold for this to be Texas. Oh, uh, you know, we do have a winter. We do have a winter, but it is short and uh, it's generally pretty mild. Hopefully we don't have a big freeze this year, uh, but we've got a really long spring. So, you know, you should really come back. What are your impressions of the March for Life since you were there today? What do you come away with having been a part of that? I always come away with so much more encouragement and optimism uh, because it's it's look what I really notice about the March for Life is it's very, very young ton of young people there and they're and there's no there's no yelling and screaming there's no hatred there's no fighting it's just happiness it's just uh, joy and love of life and that's why this movement is winning i think that's why you've seen um because look the, the, this cultural movements they give legislators the let's say the the boldness that they need the, the the confidence they need to pass legislation that is indeed controversial i mean the pro-choice movement is 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 indeed very angry oftentimes um and i think that's why they're losing so like i i came away just very encouraged i love seeing the march for life i think it's so great why are you pro-life and how do you respond when people say oh well here's just a here's just a dude weighing in on you know women's rights because i'm pro-human rights you know um we're pro-life because we're pro-human rights. We're pro-life because in our Declaration of Independence, says that the purpose of government is to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we have to take that quite literally. Um, you, the, you know, choices of convenience, they, we, we, of course, want to allow as much of that as possible, but not insofar as it infringes on somebody else's inalienable rights, which is exactly what abortion does. Now, it, it doesn't take away from the hardship of having a newborn, but then let's have that conversation. Let's talk about better adoption policies and better support for, for new parents. I, I am highly open to that. Like conservatives need to be more open to to supporting families in America. Let's have those conversations. But but you can't you can't just end a life in the womb just because it's still in the womb. There's there's no scientific reason. There's no moral reason to believe that it has less value than a life out of the womb. It, it just it just doesn't make sense. We're, we're past that. And we need we need to close this chapter in human history. Congressman Dan Crenshaw, my guest on The Guy Benson Show, yesterday was January 20th, a year prior Joe Biden was inaugurated as our 46th president of the United States. How do you assess year one of the Biden presidency? Well, I assess it like most Americans assess it, and it's not going well. Um, You know, he gave this press conference. He he honestly just shouldn't give press conferences. He doesn't look well. Um, He's not able to answer these questions with with any kind of authority uh, that gives the American people confidence. And there's there's just been a long list of failures that's extremely hard to uh, defend. And what's even more frustrating is he gives himself a pretty good grade, as he says, but about 40 percent of Americans would give him a failing grade. So, you know, he began the he began the year uh, attacking the Texas oil and gas industry, banning drilling on federal land that eventually got withdrawn by a judge. But they haven't really given any new leases. Um, you know, the production is still low, mostly because there's a chilling effect by this administration, because the, the, the industry feels under attack constantly. They've closed down pipelines. They've threatened new taxes, threatened new regulations. And so you're not seeing the, the production able to catch up. 
Um, and of course, Biden turns around and says, well, we, we wish Russia would produce more. I mean, Russia, you know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, asking OPEC to do that. Um, they've created a terrible border crisis by by rescinding Trump's policies about almost two million encounters on the border in 2021. And um, and, and a huge majority of those are going uh, out into the uh, they're just being let loose out into the public. Uh, it, it's an absolute disaster. Inflation is almost seven percent. Uh, they raced they three years of real wage growth for American families because of this inflation. They failed to to uh, to, to, to do anything about the supply chain issues that we face. Um, failed to address the spike in crime across the country, focusing in the FBI instead on parents who want to go to school, school board mm-hmm. meetings. Uh, of course, let's not forget the disastrous withdrawal of Afghanistan, which is now leading uh, authoritarians around the world to believe that they can do whatever they want. And now in putting us in very, very difficult foreign policy situations like we're seeing in the Ukraine and potentially Taiwan. Um, now, hey, on the good news, they're also really they're so bad at all of this that their agenda is failing, too. And the Build Back Better plan has basically died. Um, but we'll see what kind of things the, the Democrats attempt to resurrect in the Congress or what pieces of it. So all in all, pretty failing grade there. Um, yeah. Guy. And he's at 40 uh, percent approval, roughly nationwide among independents. I was talking about this in the last segment, and then I happened to see a tweet that was looking at the average of recent polls among independents and Biden's. 30 points, almost 30 points underwater. His approval rating is 30%. That's a group that he won by 13 points in 2020. So there's been a lot of erosion there. And I wonder some of it probably has to do, Congressman, with just some of the incoherence from the president himself and the team. We watched that press conference. You said maybe you wouldn't advise him to do too many of those, but he had one on Wednesday. And During the press conference, he said something, for example, about Russia and the minor incursion that his team immediately had to say, well, no, no, that's not what he meant. He meant something else. And then he cleaned it up the next day. He also questioned the legitimacy of future elections. If the Democrats don't get their way on this crazy election takeover thing that they've tried and failed, he was very open to the idea and said, there's a yeah, it's absolutely possible that the elections may not be legitimate. And the vice president seemed to back that up the next morning. And then the White House quickly said, no, 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 that, that's not what he meant. That's, that, let's be clear. He, he meant the opposite thing of that. He also got angry at that same press conference when he was being pushed on the rhetoric that he used. Mr. Unity talking about, you know, Jim Crow and you know, Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor and all that stuff in the speech down in Atlanta. And he said, no, no, that's, that's not what I even said. That's not what I meant. He was shouting at the reporter. We all saw what he said. It just seems like the guy comes out, blurts things out, and then we're all supposed to just sit around and buy these revisionist cleanup, mop-up jobs by his team around him. That does not inspire confidence at all. Yeah, I think that's right. I think he doesn't know what he's doing. I don't think he knows what he really believes. I don't think this man has has very secured foundations or principles that would drive his thinking. You know, it's it's difficult to know what 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 he values, what his framework is for solving problems. One of the big reasons I'm a conservative is because conservatism, by definition, gives you principles by which with which you solve problems. Um, liberalism doesn't. And, and and Joe Biden himself, he's been an opportunist for forty plus years in politics doesn't know what he believes. And so he's willing to go along with whatever seems like the right thing to say, or at least what his progressive advisors are telling him. But it's 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 out of step with the American people. And so he says one thing. And, and look, he's just he's just not able to communicate coherently. That's a big problem here. Um, and look, I, he is the leader of our country. And I want I want us to be represented better. 
which is why which is why I made the comment. Maybe you just don't go and do press conferences because you create more problems. You know, while it might be good for 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 Republicans politically when he does that, it's bad for the country. Um, you know, that 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 let's, let's comment on the Ukraine thing. I mean, look, I, I understand kind of what he was trying to say about talking about proportionality um, of the responses. But you have to be so unbelievably careful when you say things like this, because when you green light a small incursion, small incursions, small conflicts, they lead to bigger conflicts, especially when you're dealing with authoritarians. And I, and I, I wish more people understood this because a lot of people don't understand why we should be interested in what's going on over there. Um, some people say, oh, well, the, the Russia is just protecting its border. That's nonsense. Russia never does any military exercises that are defensive in nature. They only do offensive military exercises. They practice bombing Stockholm, Sweden. That's what they practice in their exercises. They have every intention of continuing this aggression. And, they and, and by the way, they're so doing, just they... to jump in, they're doing joint exercises militarily with the Chinese and the Iranians. That gives you a sense of that's sort of a new access, if you will. It has become a new axis, and it's an axis of basically just troublemaking and trying to expand our own spheres of influence against democratic nations. And if America is not going to care about that, then what on earth do we stand for? And let's not pretend that it doesn't harm us. Let's not pretend that it can't affect us. The world is a very small place. It's a 12-hour flight to Europe. You know, to say that these things don't have reverberations throughout the world is nonsense and naive. And we have to stop thinking that way and stop calling people warmongers just because they want to prevent war. I mean, you prevent war through strength and decisive action and through making it clear that there will be there, there will be cost to to an action. So in this case, you have to make it very clear. I know our administration is actually doing this, but the Europeans have to be on board, too. Our administration needs to get the Europeans on board with economic sanctions severe economic sanctions that would that would change the calculus of Putin. You also need to be get, doing exactly what Donald Trump did, which was which was arming the Ukrainians with defensive weaponry, not offensive weaponry, because we don't want to make it seem like we want to invade. We have no desire to go to war with Russia. We have to be very clear about that. But we also have to make it clear that there are costs to these things. And if, if we don't do that, you end up with war. You don't end up with peace. You end up with war. And history tells us that, you know, if, when you look at when you look at what happened in Europe in World War Two, I mean, it's you look, they let Hitler take country after country and then hoped that there would be peace after that, that there would be peace after that. But eventually you had a much greater cost incurred on allies because because they just kept going and we kept letting them for that policy of appeasement. This happens over and over again. You must prevent these kind of conflicts before they start. Congressman Dan Crenshaw is my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. You mentioned a few moments ago the border crisis. It didn't get, I think, any attention during the press conference. It's still very much raging. We talked about what appear to be the new numbers in December, an increase again over November, a massive increase year over year, of course. And this continues to be a problem. I saw this report. This was initially from The Daily Caller. Fox has now confirmed it. And it reads like, honestly, something something out of the Babylon Bee, Congressman. I don't know if you've seen this yet. In a statement to Fox News, the TSA has confirmed that they are permitting illegal immigrants to use their own arrest warrants as a form of ID at airport security checkpoints. I mean, maybe there's more context to that. It just feels like like conservative satire of totally ludicrous uh, immigration governance. That's exactly the right way to describe it. I, I heard about this this morning. Um, we'll live on an interview. And I, I was just I was stunned. Um, I mean, look, it, it, it's harder to go out to eat uh, in D.C. because you have to show a vax card now than it right. is for illegal immigrants to fly. 
I mean, Ugh. what the heck is going on here? So, like, you can cross our border with impunity. You don't have to be vaxxed. You don't have to have a test. And, and then you get arrested. And then you can literally use the arrest warrant to go wherever you want. I, I agree. I hope there's more contacts we're investigating to see exactly what the deal is with this. But, like, it's just, it's just yet another, um, I, I honestly, just slap in the face to the American people, um, where this administration seems to take action for everyone but Americans. And, and that's just, it's, it's beyond the pale. Congressman, there was a video that went like a little bit viral. Um, You've got a whole crew of people who don't like you, uh, mostly on the left, a handful on the right as well. And so they were circulating the video. It's, I guess, some town hall type meeting you were doing. And a young woman asked you a question, which was seemed to be kind of uh, loaded. And you took it as this uh, young woman questioning your Christian faith. And you were unhappy about that. The narrative was, oh, you know, Crenshaw loses his cool and blows his top at some 10 year old girl. Uh, it seems like there's actually more context to who this person was. Um, I just wonder, looking back on it, it came a little like a little tempest in in your district. Do you would you have done things differently? Uh, you know, with, with a, a redo there. Or just what did you make of that exchange? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, context. Of course, she's not ten years old. She's an adult, um, and she she's a, a full time volunteer for my opponent. And so it was not not just a little bit loaded question. I mean, they they planted it. I'd already answered this question before. That like the, like you said, there's a lot of smears and and things going on recently, and one of them is accusing me of not believing in Jesus Christ. Uh, and look, you can you can smear me every day. I get insulted and smeared and lies are spread about me every single day because people recognize my name and they know that that if they say something sensationalist about me, it'll get clicks, it'll get retweets and, um, you know, they control me. But questioning my faith, well, really is crossing a line, um, questioning my belief in Jesus Christ and. And, and it was purposefully done. It was not. A, it was not genuinely done. I'd actually just talked about the rumor minutes before that question, so I'd, I'd already answered it for the audience. Yeah. And um, I don't know if I snapped. I said, "Look, don't question my faith. Don't question my faith. That's crossing a line." And um, and and you know it. Of course, I'd, I'd want to redo because I wouldn't want to give my opponents those uh, those clips that they got. So uh, to answer your question, of course, I would just. Uh, let it slide next time. But, but that's the full explanation. That was, that was of course uh, the opposite of what was going around on Twitter, you know, making it yeah. seem like there was a, Oh, a I'm shocked. Just wasn't, just but hang on. Really Twitter out. took something yeah. out of context and blew it up. I've, I've never heard of can such a imagine? thing. Can you imagine the internet? <laughs> Dan Crenshaw, Republican from Texas down in the Houston area. We always appreciate you swinging by Congressman. Let's talk again soon. And hello from Austin. Hey, great to have, great to be with you guys. Thanks for All doing right. this. Take care. You bet. Thanks for coming on. And with that, we will step aside. Another out of context, nonsense, controversy on social media. We will uh, unpack that and dismantle it after this on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. What's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. Back on the Guy Benson show, that was Mitch McConnell just the other day getting asked a question that multiple Republicans and Joe Manchin and others have also been asked, which is just a bogus premise. That without doing the big Democrat federal power grab with banning photo ID and uh, we've gone through the whole list, without that, 
well, people are not going to be able to vote. They're going to lose their right to vote. It's under attack. There's a crisis. This is not true. And McConnell made the effort there to question the premise, and he was talking about a specific statistic, which I think is relevant. They keep screaming voter suppression. Of course, there are rules in New York and Delaware and elsewhere that are more suppressive than the so-called suppressive places based on the Democrats' rhetoric. Setting that aside as well for the moment, he said there's no actual evidence of this voter suppression of minorities at all. And he says there's no statistical indication that African-Americans are voting or turning out at any less of a clip than other Americans or Americans generally. That is obviously what he meant. But what the left is saying is, listen, listen to what Mitch McConnell said. He said African-Americans are voting at the same rates as Americans. He doesn't even consider them Americans. This is racism. Uh, This racist Republican doesn't even consider black people to be Americans. Um, This is a very, very stupid controversy, even by Twitter standards. And I don't think anyone actually buys into it at all. It's just like this totally synthetic, made-up outrage because McConnell didn't say the word other or all Americans. He also called the African-Americans african Americans, which kind of defeats the idea that he doesn't view them as Americans. So painfully stupid. Thus is the state of our discourse. Oh, it makes my head hurt. I'll pop a Tylenol. Come back with Shannon Bream after this. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour underway. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to one and all. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time every weekday, although we are on Central Time here in Austin, Texas today. At Talk Radio 1370 AM, thank you folks for having me here. I appreciate it. As we begin our middle hour, I remind you that GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day, and we've had really astronomical growth on that and other fronts, and that is thanks to you, and we are always grateful. And let's keep going. Let's keep growing together. Fox News alert. Now, the Dow just got hammered today, down 449 points at the close and closing out the week at 34,265. Joining me now is Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent and anchor at Fox News. She has the Fox News at night program at midnight Eastern every evening. She's also host of the hit podcast, Live in the Bream. She's a best-selling author of the Women of the Bible Speak. And this coming weekend, she'll be anchoring Fox News Sunday. Shannon, do you sleep ever? <laughs> I can ask you the same thing, Guy. You are a hardworking man, and congrats on how well everything's going. Well, I appreciate that, and I have questions about your uh, Fox News Sunday duties coming up. But let's start with the first bio item that I mentioned there in your intro, chief legal correspondent. There was a story that came out, NPR, very well-known, left-leaning, long-tenured reporter, Nina Totenberg reporting some real drama and anger behind the scenes uh, involving the justices of the Supreme Court 
and a flap about masking and this sort of thing. The whole thing smelled a little bit strange to me from the beginning. Give us the timeline of the report and then what you reported and then these very unusual statements from justices themselves. Yeah, when I saw the report on Tuesday, I thought, I'm going to sniff around on this because the reporting was that the chief justice, knowing that Justice Sotomayor is diabetic and has tried to be very careful and is uncomfortable about people being around her who aren't masked, that the chief had gone to the other justices and asked them to, and that at some point Justice Gorsuch had refused. And because of that, Justice Sotomayor was being forced to isolate for arguments and not go to the bench, do everything remotely. And I thought, well, let me start, you know, with the public information office. Um, we don't usually get any kind of scoop from them. But I said, you know, is anybody going to release a statement? And then I started sniffing out on my own sources and got a completely different story behind the scenes, that there had been no blanket request from the chief to the other justices, um, and that there wasn't a showdown over masks. It simply wasn't going on. So we reported that Tuesday night, broke it first on special report and stuck with it. And I thought to myself, you know, really the only thing that's going to shut this down, because it's one reporter with sources against another reporter with sources, is going to be if the justices issue statements. And it's so rare. I just didn't think they would. So when on Wednesday we first got the joint statement from Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor saying, you know, she never asked him, he never refused. They do sit next to each other on the bench. And the statement went on to say, we were surprised. It is a false report. And um, while we disagree on matters of law, we do have a warm, friendly relationship. I thought, well, that's good. But even, you know, that didn't take down the NPR story, uh, you know, in the way that some people thought, well, it leaves room there. Did the chief still make these requests? So the chief, in an exceptionally rare statement, puts out uh, a statement saying it's false. I never asked Justice Gorsuch or any of the justices to mask up. End of story. Not going to comment again. So that's where we are. And if you don't want to trust my sources over Nina Totenberg, that's fine. She's got decades more covering the court. I get it. Um, but if you don't want to trust the justices themselves, that's a different story. Well, I mean, that's what's so confusing to me, because there are a lot of people, including uh, this reporter herself, Totenberg, who are totally invested in her reporting and saying we stand by it. This is what happened. Like, this is a narrative. I, I think mm-hmm. for some people, they just love the idea that Gorsuch, you know, a, a right leaning justice or a Trump appointee would be just a jerk to a, a female, you know, woman of color on the left. And it just sort of fits with the story that they like to tell themselves. It didn't seem to align with what Gorsuch is known to be just as a person, uh, which is mm-hmm. part of the reason why I was sort of confused at the at the outset here. But now that you have every single relevant justice, as you point out, so rare, all three of them have put out statements, knocking it down, saying this did not happen. She is tripling down in her reporting. She's saying I, it's true or, you know, I they stand by my reporting. She's been very angry at her critics sort of lashing out, I don't know what else could be done to convince people that this didn't happen beyond these statements. It just seems very strange to me. One of the theories that I've seen, you might think this is, there's something to it. You might think this is crazy. One of the theories that at least is out there is, you know, could Totenberg be tripling down because her source is Sotomayor or her source is someone like a, a top clerk to Sotomayor. So she's like, this is what I was told. I'm not backing away from it. And what the left is now claiming, some of the dead enders on this story is Sotomayor is allowing herself to be used by the right wing to cover up an embarrassing situation for Gorsuch. And so she's lying. I mean, that is that is a pretty wild stretch, mm-hmm. but that's what it's come to. It's a very odd thing. And it goes to the the fundamental underlying issue, Shannon, of like, 
trust in the media, which is already in the toilet. This is not seeming to me to be uh, helpful in that regard. Yeah, it, it, you know, we all feel like our sources are good and we all, and I, I don't know if this has happened to you, it's happened to me. I've been burned by a source who either didn't have the full context or gave me only part of the story. They always, you know, have their own motivations. A lot of times sources in stories that feed us things. So listen, I know Nina has been covering the court for decades and I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. I wouldn't doubt, I have no idea who her source is, um, but I have no doubt that it's possible the source who gave her the information did not have the full context or gave her this nugget. I think this started when Ruth Marcus was tweeting about and writing about um, Gorsuch being um, uncivilized or unkind because he was the only one not wearing a mask. And so I think some people thought, okay, he's not wearing a mask. He sits next to Justice Sotomayor. She's not on the bench. There's got to be some tips there. And maybe you have to make some calls on that. And somebody that you feel is a good, reliable source to you says, yeah, there's some angst there. And Everybody was asked to wear a mask, and, you know, Gorsuch is the only one showing up without them, and you run with it. So I don't doubt that she may have been fed incomplete information. I'm, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt because sometimes our sources aren't perfectly accurate. You know, I, that's fair, but, like, and now we're very much – we've moved on from what's happened at the court into the realm of discussing sort of the ethics of journalism. If you were fed this information by someone – and, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was Sotomayor. I mean <laughs> – it, which seems it seems highly implausible that Sotomayor would plant the story with a reporter, then turn around and release a statement with Gorsuch saying, no, that's not true. It didn't happen as like a favor to Gorsuch and to clean up a mess for for the conservatives that 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 doesn't make any sense at all. I guess the thing is, if you truly believe that your source gave you what they thought was a scoop, it was incomplete or inaccurate at best. Once you have the actual principles involved, all unanimously say, no, this didn't happen, to just insist all the way down and, like, you know, go down with the story and angrily, you know, sort of in a combative way, it, I don't know, it, it really seems to diminish credibility and convince a lot of Americans further that there's a lot of fake news out there. And when the media does get something wrong, if it fits with a narrative that they prefer, they are very loath to let go of it, even when everyone involved says it's not real. Well, I mean, it, it, it puts whoever Nina sources against the chief justice of the United States of America. One of them is lying <laughs> or not telling the well, And story. not just the chief justice, so, all three of them. Right. And, and he spoke, you know, the, the and, and by the way, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's it's also you've got one of the most conservative justices on the bench, one of the most middle ground justices on the bench and arguably the most left wing justice on the bench. All three of them agree that this did not happen. That would be a very odd, like conspiracy of silence mm -hmm. <laughs> to be lying about. Right. They, they just use some logic here. I agree. I mean, I feel like there. I feel like there's clearly more to the story. There's only so much we're all going to get from our sources. We can't be in the room with these, you know, justices and, and hear their conversations for ourselves. Right. right. So, um, you know, you just have to. If you trust your source, you got to go with it. In this case, we're both sides are doing that of this conversation. Um, but again, much more important and relevant than anything I could ever report are those three statements from the justices, and I think That's they right. speak for themselves. Shannon Bream, you are going to be hosting this weekend Fox News Sunday, in addition to all of your other duties, including Fox News mm -hmm. at night, tonight at midnight Eastern. What do we have on tap for Fox News Sunday this week? Well, clearly there's been a big focus on the ratcheting up of foreign policy issues with regard to 
Ukraine and Russia, and clearly that sparks a broader foreign policy discussion regarding the Biden administration with regard to China and Iran and all the other things that are going on out there. So we have a Democratic senator um, who I shall not name yet, we will be able to publicly announce shortly, who's going to join us on all those fronts to talk about what's going on. Um, So we'll cover the waterfront on that, the filibuster, the voting bills that went down, the filibuster fight that went down. A lot of stuff happened Um, this week. Yeah, there's a lot to cover. So um, we're going to do that with uh, somebody we will reveal shortly. Uh, and then also today's the March for Life. And so we're going to have brand new Fox News polling on the Biden presidency, on abortion, what Americans think about that. And Governor Christine Nome, who's just introduced uh, and working on a couple of very early uh, abortion restriction bills. We'll From South Dakota. That. All right. From South Dakota. And uh, so that and our panelists are going to be fabulous. Julie Pace. There we go. Ethan and Mo Olivi. We're up on a break. We'll be watching Shannon Bream on The Guy Benson Show. Break a leg, Shannon. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Happy Friday. From Austin, Texas, it's The Guy Benson Show. We told you a few days ago about this uh, crazy new law enforcement regime in New York City with this left-wing prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, who was elected. And there was going to be something of a power struggle in New York because the new mayor is a former cop and campaigned on law and order. Eric Adams saying we're not going to tolerate this stuff. But the left wing D.A. had a very different idea. And he had put out a memo basically saying unless it's murder or certain other very serious felonies, we're kind of not going to seek prison time for people. Including like if you go in with a gun, brandish a gun and rob a store. That would not be considered that type of, you know, heavy felony requiring prison time. It was nuts. There's basically an announcement. We're not really going to enforce the law. And a lot of crime is not going to come with serious consequences and even serious crime like murder. We're not going to seek prison sentences of more than 20 years ever. And those are the general broad strokes of the approach laid out by this D.A. Bragg. And boy, the backlash was very significant. And I would like to know how much of it was behind the scenes. Like, was the mayor calling this guy being like, you are on drugs if you think this is how it's going to go down. And by the way, being on drugs obviously would not be a prosecutable crime under this guy's idea. But was there pressure maybe from even higher up? The Biden White House didn't want to comment on this. Jen Psaki was asked about this on Fox News just recently by Dana Perino. And she said, oh, the president doesn't want to weigh in. I wonder if there was maybe a phone call made along the way because this is so politically toxic in a time where crime has been rampaging in this country violent crime murder records being set in major cities a lot of them new york city has had all sorts of problems the voters vote for a tough on crime mayor and then the da saying we're not going to defund the police that's not our power we're just going to sort of stop prosecuting a bunch of crime The same failed experiment that we saw in L.A., San Francisco, Philadelphia. It's just a mess in those places. Like you want to make New York even worse? That was the path that this district attorney was headed down. And now a very dramatic about face. He's rescinding that memo. He's saying it's based on confusion and they're going to be enforcing the law. I would love to know the backstory on this. There was no confusion. We saw what he wanted to do, what he announced and all the woke equity, all that stuff and all the activists were cheering. And then he decided to abandon the plan. 
Here he is in cut 14 making that announcement. I understand why those who read my memo of January 3rd uh, have been left with the wrong impression about how I will enforce New York's laws. Uh, I take a full uh, accountability for that confusion uh, caused by the memo. Uh, it was unclear and legalistic, put out into the public domain, and uh, left many New Yorkers justifiably concerned for how we will keep them safe. We will be prosecuting all robberies with a gun as a felon. Uh, let me be clear any use of a gun to rob a store, by definition, is and must be and will be treated seriously. <laughs> I mean, he clearly did not believe these things because he put it in writing. Oh, it was legalistic. It was confusing. There was a misunderstanding. No, it was actually very clear what he meant and what he intended. And now he's trying to wriggle out of it because the backlash from various sources was clearly uh, very, very intense and immediate. So this is at least a hopeful sign that the absolute insanity has been postponed or temporarily defeated. But that's not a terribly convincing performance, in my opinion. Question is, who got to him? I'm glad someone did. I mean, it's just nuts what he was saying. He's insulting our intelligence, pretending like, oh, we just didn't really understand it. It's my fault, but you didn't understand. No, we understood. And is he actually going to follow through, or did he have to say, let me be clear, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, but he's still ideologically committed to the nuttiness that he laid out in that memo? We shall see. Time will tell. Meanwhile, I mentioned L.A. as one of these cities with horrible, horrible crime. When you have a left-wing district attorney who doesn't seem interested in prosecuting crime, we talked about with Andy McCarthy this week those train robberies. I mean, mass-scale thousands of boxcars and containers on these trains getting looted, not just occasionally, but like all the time. Amazon packages, that sort of thing, criminals in an organized way going through, rummaging through all these packages, just discarding the packages on the side of the tracks, taking the valuable stuff inside. It's, I mean, it's disgusting to look at. And I wonder where the environmentalists on this, right? All the pollution, all the litter. I mean, it is massive, the scale of this. And it's millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of robberies. So the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, I guess finally he decided, gosh, this doesn't look good. In fact, he said it kind of looks like a failed state situation, which is what I said. He decided he was going to get in front of the microphones and explain that he's mad about it. I mean, he should just pick up the phone and talk to the DA. And this is his party, his tribe, his ideological buddies that are responsible for this. Just open season for criminals in some of these places. But something that he said while expressing his anger to the public was just absolutely fantastic, quintessential woke tales. Woke tales. Here's what he said and had to sort of apologize for a phrase, a word that he used. You can't make it up. Cut 18. Just mark my words. This is not one off. This is organized theft. These are organized gangs of people. That are coming out and forgive me for saying gangs. I know that, that that that's not a pejorative. They're organized groups of folks. We can't say looting, right? We found out that was racist or something. We can't say gangs, I guess. He's talking about gangs of people, which is what this is. Organized crime. He said gangs, and immediately there's alarm bells in the woke part of his brain. Whoop, that's not one of the words we're allowed to use. I'm so sorry for saying gangs. Did I say gangs? I didn't mean that. Not a pejorative, not a pejorative. <laughs> California man. It is beyond parody.
That's Woke Tales. This is The Guy Benson Show. KT McFarland on Russia, Ukraine, and more coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are halfway through the show today on this Friday from Austin, Texas. Talk Radio 1370 AM, and we are very grateful to be here. The right choice in the capital of the Lone Star State. And we are joined now by Katie McFarland, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor. She has served in multiple presidential administrations. Author of the book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. Katie, it's great to have you back here. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Guy. I would like to get your take on this huge geopolitical issue that has really been brewing for weeks, if not months, and it seems like it's coming to a head, Russia and Ukraine. Before I ask you about Putin and what he's up to and all of that, I'd like to get your thoughts on what the president has said just in the last few days. President Biden at his press conference Wednesday raised a lot of eyebrows, to put it mildly, when he talked about a minor incursion that might be different than a full-scale invasion. He cleaned that up a little bit yesterday in Cut One. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. But there is no doubt, let there be no doubt at all, that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. Ukrainian foreign minister said this morning that he's confident of our support and resolve, and he has a right to be. So, KT, obviously people were very alarmed in Ukraine and Kiev. Foreign policy experts here in the United States are allies based on what the president said at the press conference, where there was really a lot of room for equivocation and sort of wondering what he meant by certain things. He tried to reverse some of that damage yesterday. Is that too little too late? Has Putin already sort of seen the hand being tipped? What do you make of this? Well, President Biden made it worse when he tried to clarify it. He said, well, I'm going to define an invasion, and an invasion is, quote, any assembled Russian units that move across the Ukrainian border, unquote. So he said that's what they're going to react to. And then the prior day obviously had said, you know, minor incursion. Well, Let's just think about Vladimir Putin and what are his what are his capabilities. He could do everything from a full scale invasion to what's called hybrid war, and that's where Putin is conducting warfare now. And Biden has just said to him, "Go right ahead, hybrid war. That works just fine." So, can, can I ask war, you about that? Just to just to drill down a little bit, are you talking about when you use that term hybrid war? Is that like the little green men effect? Yeah. Exactly. So a hybrid war is something that um, Vladimir Putin has perfected. They tried it in, they did it in the country of Georgia in 2008. They did it in the Crimea in 2014. And it has several components. One, cyber attacks on the government. That's already started. Putin did that last week against Ukraine. Number two, disinformation campaigns. So telling the people in various countries what he wants them to hear, telling the Russians that the Ukrainians are the aggressor, telling the Ukrainians, you better watch out, we're coming. But the most important part of it is, is what's called little green men. 
Now, this is not Martians. This is Russian forces who take off their uniforms and put on civilian clothes. They cross over the border into Ukraine, and then they start making false flag operations. So they start little guerrilla mini-wars. And what they'll do is is make things so destabilized at that, where they are on that side of the border that the Russians say, well, wait a minute, you, Ukraine, you can't keep peace and keep order in the ethnic Russian part of your country, so we've got to go in and we've got to protect ethnic Russian people. And that's what happens next. So that's sort of um, where the president... But if we know the playbook, it, KT, if yeah. we know the playbook, and he's deployed it, that exact play, multiple times... It's obvious what's going on here. The world would understand what's going on here. It's just the same thing over and over again. Why would that be any different than a full-blown official incursion? If that's the pretext that they're creating for an invasion, it's like we've seen the movie before. Why wouldn't the president say anything akin to that, anything remotely approaching the Russians, however you want to describe that or define that, Anything approaching that counts as an invasion in our book, and we won't tolerate it. Why be so hyper-narrow and, and very specific in that definition if you know how Putin operates and how he sequences these things? Because President Biden's looking for an out, and so are the Germans, and so are the rest of Europe. They don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize their own economic security by doing anything to help Ukraine. They'll all make strong statements, issue you know, big warnings, but they won't do anything about it. And here's why Putin is able to do what he's able to do now, and he couldn't have done it a year ago. Right now, Europe is in the middle of an energy crisis. Home heating oils or home heating fuel in Germany is twice what it was a year ago. Gasoline is two and three times what it was. Why is all that? Because Russia controls the oil and natural gas imports into Europe. Europe needs that. And they need it reliably, they need it at a certain price, and they need it to be consistent. And that's why none of them want to jeopardize their flow of oil and natural gas to their own countries for the sake of Ukraine. Because Putin has made it very clear. He'll just turn on and off those pipeline switches. You know, a third of all energy going into Europe comes from Russia. With the new um, Nord Stream 2 pipeline that President Biden agreed to let the Russians have, there'd be like 50, 70 percent of all energy. So... In essence, if well, then they would have they would have even more dominance. Yeah, exactly. They're going to control. So, in in essence, Russia is going to control the economies of of the European countries. Why would they want to agree to that? (laughs) They're pretty pretty short-sighted. I mean, the Europeans are doing it because they think it's a cheap source of energy. They also think the United States isn't going to to help them. I mean, a year ago, the United States was energy independent. Oil and natural gas were low. We were exporting energy to these countries. Russia was bankrupt. Iran was bankrupt. But when President Biden came in, he turned all that around. He stopped the Keystone Pipeline. He stopped the American energy industry. As a result, predictably, the prices go up. Other countries need to find their source of energy elsewhere. I mean, if Biden were really serious, which I don't think he is, but if he were really serious about changing things with Ukraine, he would get on the, on the air today and he would say, I'm announcing we're going to go all out for American energy, American oil, natural gas, and we are going to export it. We're going to export it cheaply. We are going to help the Europeans get off of Russian oil and natural gas and get on to American well, oil. Well, the environmentalists won't let him do that, right? No, nope. and, and, and again, if he was serious about the environment, he would do that. Why? Because countries and companies are switching from dirty and expensive coal to cheap and clean natural gas. But the, the far left, the radical environmentalists, they don't want anything except windmills and solar power. 
So even natural gas isn't good enough for them. Do you think, KT, that the president is bluffing when he talks about these extremely painful, serious sanctions like cutting the Russians out of the global banking system and, you know, sanctioning, for example, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that you mentioned? He's saying this would be unlike any other sanctions that have ever hit Russia before, and it would be really, really catastrophic for the Russian economy. I mean, that seems like a pretty significant threat. I guess he was hinting in that press conference that maybe not all of NATO is on board and there's still disagreement about whether there would be unanimity on that. But is there a credible threat, do you think, that if Putin invades in whatever way he does, that those sanctions would come down and they would be crippling? The only sanctions that will make any difference to Russia are if you stop the Russian flow of oil and natural gas, Russian oil and natural gas exports, which you could do through that SWIFT system that you were referring to, because that means that Russia wouldn't be able to cash the check um, that it receives from these other countries. But I don't think these, if, is Germany going to go along with that? Is France going to go along with that? Are they going to say, okay, fine, we're not going to get Russian oil and natural gas? They're not going to go along with it. Do you think Putin would have a different calculation if you had those governments standing shoulder to shoulder, speaking with one voice, we are going to do this if you do X, Y, or Z? I mean, I, I haven't seen that. There's sort of been the hinting that that will all happen and the threat that that will happen, but there hasn't been like an official confirmation that all the key players are on board. I guess it's it's that uncertainty that might be emboldening Putin here, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Look, if we really wanted to get serious about boxing Putin in, we would, we the United States would say, oil and natural gas, we're going to flip that switch back on, and we are going to supply Europe with oil and natural gas. And we could, we could do it. We could do it pretty quickly. But we're not going to do it because of, as you just mentioned, the far left and radical environmentalists. Um, as a result, the European countries in NATO and in the United States, we're fractured on what the response is. And I don't mean that as a pun. We are, we are not in agreement because Germany, France, and Europe would have to pay a very heavy price if Russia decides to retaliate against them over Ukraine. The United States would not pay a heavy price. We would not lose our energy. Um, but the Germans, they would be shivering and in the dark in about a month, in about a week, actually, if they did. So that's why there's no agreement within NATO. And that's why I fault, frankly, President Biden personally, because he gave this weapon, this energy weapon, to the Russians. He gave the Russians the ability to divide. Well, he threw some lifelines to the Iranians, to the Russians. I mean, he did this Absolutely. to be not Trump. He's doing these things that have been very welcome news strategically to some of our adversaries and enemies. KT, do you buy into this idea now? And I saw Senator Rubio mentioned it. Biden was sort of musing about it on Wednesday as well. People are starting to say it's no longer a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I saw a confirmation from our colleagues here at Fox News mm -hmm. that there are preparations now underway for a potential evacuation of Americans from Ukraine if that becomes necessary. But the contingency planning obviously is well underway. Do you think that it is inevitable that this incursion in some form is going to happen? And if so, setting aside what we're going to do about it or not, why is Putin doing it in the first place? Why does he want to? I think there are three things happening. One, Putin has really three options. One, an all-out invasion. But as we just discussed, that might trigger a response from the U U.S. and European countries. Number two, he can do this hybrid warfare that you and I have just discussed, false flag operations. He gets just what he wants. 
just with a false flag operations. Or three, he might say, okay, I'm going to pocket what I have now. I made it pretty clear to the world that Europe is not going to stand up for Ukraine. America is not going to stand up for Ukraine. I'm going to pocket this now and then work over the next six months to destabilize the Ukrainian government to cause false flag operations, and then Ukraine's going to fall into my lap. So Putin has all the options. He could do any one of those things. He will do something. And his objective, his long-term objective, is to restore Mother Russia to greatness. For that, he needs Ukraine under Russian control. But at a minimum, he wants to make sure Ukraine doesn't fall into the Western sphere of influence, and he sure as heck doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. I think at this point, Putin has achieved his objective of making it clear that Europe is saying to Ukraine, you're on your own. Last question, KT. Why should Americans care about this? Because there are folks maybe on the right and on the left saying, not really our business. I mean, we like the Ukrainians. They're our friends, but it's not really our fight. It's way over there. As you mentioned, our energy situation is going to be fine. Why does this matter to us? What would you say to that? I would say a couple of things. What happens with Ukraine, um, the Chinese are watching, and they're going to respond and do something with Taiwan. Taiwan would really make a difference to us for security and trade reasons. The Iranians are watching this, and the North Koreans are watching this. If Russia rolls, not rolls the tanks, but gets the West to kind of roll over on the Ukraine issue, then I think other countries will join. The other part, though, is it would be so easy for us to do something. I'm not talking about military force. I, am, I do not believe that we should use military force. I don't think it's in our interest to do it. But what is in our interest is using the economic weapon, not the weapon of sanctions, which aren't going to work, but the weapon of energy independence. If we could go to the Europeans and say, we promise you reliable, cheap, guaranteed energy from here on in, market forces are going to work. Don't you think they'd want to get off of that Russian energy? Seems like we have some tools here and some weapons and some leverage. And the question is, are we going to need to use it? What's Putin going to do? And if we do need to use it, will we actually do so and rally our other allies in a united front? And those, at least for now, seem like open questions at the moment. Very, very briefly, KT, do you think this is happening? Do you think this incursion is going to occur soon, ever? I think Russia will make a move on Ukraine within the next six weeks. I don't think it will necessarily be an invasion, but I do think it will be this hybrid warfare. Okay. KT McFarland, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor, served across multiple Republican presidential administrations, an expert on foreign policy, author of that book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Same to you. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. Senator Ben Sass, Republican Nebraska, coming up in our next hour. Bit of a follow-up here on the show. A story that we covered in recent weeks, really leading up to the election in Virginia. So that was a few months ago. There was that horrible story in Loudoun County, Virginia. So this is the exurbs of Washington, D.C. They had sort of moved left, shaded bluer in recent election cycles. But there have been some major dust-ups out there. And Glenn Youngkin campaigned heavily in Loudoun and ended up only losing Loudoun by, I believe, 9 or 10 points. It was a big recovery for the Republican ticket in that county. And a lot of that had to do with education. And the incident that I'm referring to, setting aside the school closures, of course, and critical race theory and that sort of stuff, there was a sexual assault that occurred in a bathroom 
at a high school in Loudoun County. And it was a gender fluid male student who committed this rape against a girl in a bathroom. And the father of the victim was furious, but he was sort of treated as the bad guy by the school, by the district. It was just disgraceful. They shuffled the assailant to another school where he committed another sexual assault against a different girl. So that person, that teenager has been convicted, found guilty on those charges. It's not alleged. It happened. There's a conviction. And the school district tried to cover it up. For example, there was a debate over transgender bathroom policies. Some parents were concerned. In fact, the father of the initial rape victim showed up at a school board meeting. We talked about him becoming a poster child for parents supposedly behaving badly. Remember, the Justice Department got all whipped up on this, a totally phony thing manufactured by the left to investigate what this national security threat. This guy was angry about what happened to his daughter, the way that the district handled it. He was being harassed by left wing activists saying they didn't believe his daughter. Right? They don't believe all women, just some. He got very angry. And without any of that context, it looked like he was sort of losing his mind at a meeting. Now we know why he was so upset. On that policy, on the bathroom policy, the district was saying, we don't have any knowledge of any sexual assault incidents in schools or in bathrooms. And that was a lie. The superintendent wrote to the school board in an email the day that it happened what had gone down. So there is now an effort to recall. I mean, plenty of people are calling for the superintendent to resign. There are similar calls for members of the school board, and there are recall efforts underway. The local NAACP affiliate has come out and said the thousands of parents who support the recall effort are engaged in Jim Crow activities. They're accusing these parents of all different races, upset about the cover-up of sexual assault, of being guilty of racist Jim Crow tactics. Just like we hear in Georgia from Stacey Abrams, just like we hear from President Biden, Jim Crow 2.0, worse than Jim Crow, all of this nonsense. It is so insulting and offensive when you call everything Jim Crow that you disagree with because this chapter of the NAACP is left wing and they align with the people who are correctly under fire. When you use racism and that legacy as a weapon, it is a grave disservice to history, a grave disservice to the people who suffer under real racism, past and present. And it's a disgrace to the mission of an organization like that. And I think a lot of people have had absolutely enough of it. The backlash continues in Northern Virginia, and we will continue to watch that story on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Oh, yeah. It's the happy hour on a Friday. On the Guy Benson Show, happy Friday. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast of every minute of every show on demand for free, available at GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes, by the way, on the weekends, Bonus Benson, which you don't want to miss. And the happy hour, as always, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink in plentiful supply here in Texas. I'm broadcasting from Austin today. Talk Radio 1370 AM, the right choice. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me here. And the long drinks is everywhere in Texas, but they're expanding across the country. A bunch of new states added to the map soon. So stay tuned for those details. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can order online. You can see where it's sold near you. As I mentioned, that expansion is coming. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Joining the program once again is Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska. He serves on the Intelligence, Judiciary, Finance, and Budget Committees. Senator Sass, welcome back. Happy Friday to you. Thanks, Guy. Good to be here. I, uh, it was good to be in D.C. for the March for Life today, but I will confess that uh, I'd love to be drinking one of those beers with you in Austin. I used to be a professor there. It's a wonderful place. It is a very cool place. Weird town in ways that are good and maybe not so good. But that's terrific that you're at the March for Life today. Talk about the vibe at the March for Life, because it seems like really in, in, in a serious way, there is a great opportunity for some massive progress on this front to be made and announced in the coming months. Was there a sense of anticipation and optimism, even more so than usual, among the marchers? You know, I don't know that I distinguish this year from other years in that sense. I mean, you're surely right. There are a bunch of things happening uh, legislatively and on court dockets. But one of, one of the things I love about this march um, is that mainstream reporters have such a hard time covering it because they're used to thinking of every protest movement as about anger and about yes. power. And the, the March for Life always feels different than that because the pro-life movement is pro-woman, pro-baby, pro-science, pro-human dignity. I mean, it, it's always a movement that really is, is centered on love rather than chiefly power. And so it, it's just it's a it's a wonderful event for your listeners who've never been. It's often cold as heck, but it's it's worth the trip to D.C. in January. Well, I think part of it also, and this is why I think it's often underplayed, because, first of all, newsrooms are massively biased on the issue of abortion. I mean, more so than maybe any other issue. It's a top three, I would say, problem when it comes to blind spots for the media. I mean, these mainstream high level newsrooms are just almost exclusively populated with people who are pro-choice and even further uh, on the radical scale on this issue. So they don't really want to cover it. And there's also a huge number of people who show up, which is usually something the media likes, dramatic images, that sort of thing. Uh, not so interested on this issue, I think, again, for ideological reasons. And then also, I think the pro-life movement, they like to pigeonhole pro-lifers as sort of like sexually repressed, angry old white guys who are like evangelical hypocrites or just, you know, nice, kindly nuns counting the rosary or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with nuns counting the rosary, and there's nothing wrong with white male evangelicals at all being part of the pro-life movement. But that's really a caricature. There are so many women, especially young women, at these events. And I think that that sort of scrambles the cartoon character in their minds that they like to portray to the public in their coverage of this. It doesn't really align with the people who are involved in the movement and who show up at this march. Totally right. I mean, in, in Nebraska, we do, a, we call it the Walk for Life. So the March for Life is in D.C. And a week later, we always do the, the Walk for Life in Nebraska. And the movement is overwhelmingly um, women, young, middle-aged, some older, but women who volunteer at crisis pregnancy centers. Like, obviously, politics matter, but the movement really is about love. And it's about coming alongside women who are in a situation that they, they didn't expect and didn't intend for. And somebody put their arms around them and let them know, um, you know, that there are people who want to support them. And 
it's it's just it's an incredibly warm um, pro human dignity love centric movement. And I, I think you're right that so much of the media who who just lives in an echo chamber of the farthest left people on earth on this topic. I mean, the U.S. is depending on how you count, either the fourth or the seventh most liberal nation out of 200 nations on earth in terms of our uh, abortion related laws. And the the media thinks that that is what middle America is about. And the the media in America may be unsure how they want to regulate the first trimester, but lots and lots and lots of people want to come alongside women who are in a crisis pregnancy situation. And it's it's just, it's a special movement. Yeah. And they talk about how it's really just about uh, repressing and controlling women and they should get out and talk to some of these women. Honestly, millions of them, tens of millions of them on this issue. Senator Sass, let's talk politics. You just mentioned politics. Let's go there. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the inauguration of President Biden. He has been our president uh, for now 366 days. Your assessment of the job he has done so far? Well, the gap between candidate Biden and now uh, in the office President Biden is just breathtaking. The guy won the Democratic primary because he tried to speak to normies, and then he won the general election because he wasn't the other guy, and he said he was going to hit a reset, not be addicted to you know highly online-centric, anger-centric, rage-addicted, lonely politics of people who are addicted to making everything about fighting legislative battles. And the guy comes in and he and Chuck Schumer decide to join arm in arm and and kill the Senate, create one party rule. I mean, the the progressive plan to try to chase cinema into a bathroom and President Biden calling her and Joe Manchin and all the rest of us racists. What a a crazy thing that that didn't work. But it it is truly bizarre that junior president Ron Klain appears to spend (laughs) all day every day on Twitter. And Biden has decided to just read whatever Klain and his, you know, Twitter trolls roll into, load into uh, the president's teleprompter. It is it is a truly bizarre whiplash from the campaign that Biden ran and the way he's actually trying to govern as far left as anybody ever has in U.S. history. Yeah, you gave a pretty feisty speech a few days ago, more feisty than usual. And we saw this from other folks like McConnell and Romney, not people who are usually out there, you know, lobbing bombs at the other side. I think there was genuine offense taken at the Bull Connor, Jefferson Davis, George Wallace analogy. And uh, you were not happy with that. Then the president was asked about it during his press conference this week, and he got very angry again, raising his voice again. This time he was taking umbrage that anyone could possibly interpret those comparisons for what they were. I mean, it seemed like he was just attacking our intelligence, saying, oh, no, the thing that you heard me say and those comparisons that we obviously laid out as a weapon was not really what we intended. And you are lying about what I was really saying and intending. What do you make of that damage control, that that indignant damage control from the president? Yeah, so let's distinguish between the rhetoric itself, which is just wicked, half the country isn't Jefferson Davis, um, and the process issue around why the Senate has supermajority requirements, because that's, that's what he was attacking. But maybe to, maybe to start with the latter, it's worth remembering um, that Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden are two of the most prolific users of the filibuster in the entire 230-year history of the Senate. That's correct. These guys have used the filibuster constantly. As recently as last week, Schumer led the Democrats to filibuster uh-huh. a piece of legislation we have to impose sanctions on Putin for um, amassing, you know, troops at the border of a Ukraine he intends to invade. And the Democrats use the filibuster to protect Putin's pipeline and his revenue, energy revenue flows in and out of Germany. I mean, it's, and, it's mind blowing. 
it's it's mind-blowing. And they just they live in such an echo chamber that they assume no one in the media is going to hold them accountable to it. And so Biden was a stalwart defender of the filibuster when he was in the Senate. And then he goes to Georgia and he regurgitates a statement that a bunch of rage-addicted 20-somethings loaded into his teleprompter, and he decided to call half the country racist. He doesn't actually believe that crap. And of course, neither do the American people. And so it's bizarre to see him go out there and take umbrage and say, somebody else has misrepresented my words. Here, let me roll the clip of me calling everyone who disagrees with me, right. Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor. It is truly bizarre. But the, the good news, uh, we shouldn't stay at, at just the horrific parts of the dishonesty. Well, of although, although, hang on, before you get to the good news, I do just want to ask you this. At what point, because you say he doesn't really believe it, and I've heard this from other people who've known him for a very long time. They're like, he was sort of unrecognizable in that speech. We had Romney on yesterday, Senator Romney. We played the clip of him back in 2012 suggesting to a heavily black audience in Virginia in 2012 that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan were going to re-enslave them, put them back in change. He does say this really over-the-top, beyond-the-pale stuff sometimes. When does he have to own that? Because I know you're saying it's not really what he believes, but he said it, and he's the president, and, I mean, that's on him, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the guy clearly has some impulse control problems in that he's politically addicted, and he likes to say what he thinks will be useful to the audience he's standing in front of at that moment. And so, you know, an, an attack on the U.S. Senate like he's leveled this week would be to destroy the whole purpose of having a deliberative body, not just a populist body. In our Constitution, in our founders' vision, having two different bodies mattered, um, but we already have a majoritarian populist body, and the Senate has a different purpose. And Biden obviously loved the Senate far more than I do. I don't plan to spend my life here. The dude was here basically as long as I've been alive. Um, but blowing up the Senate is not something that he will, you know, much later in life look back and want to do. And it's not something he wanted to do for the decades he served here. He just thought it was useful at that moment. Right. And so that, that, that politically addicted narcissism is so much of what's wrong with our political process not being able to get stuff done for the American people, but why also so many Americans want to check out because they think that people who talk in politics are morons who just have diarrhea out the mouth every day. And so they the good news is that the filibuster is staying in place um, because that's a way to find common sense and compromise. We should work together. And if you can't get to a place where at least 60 percent of the representatives of the American people um, think that we should move forward, then we probably shouldn't be passing the legislation because you don't want a 5149-4951 pendulum swing every time. Yeah, and, and what you're hearing from people on the left, and of course, a lot of them were jealously defensive of the filibuster for a very long time. I remember all the left-wing groups having huge rallies, save the filibuster. I mean, the, the hypocrisy is off the charts, even by D.C. standards, off the charts on this one. All these Democrats signed a letter demanding that the filibuster remain in place in 2017. And then every single one of them, except for Joe Manchin, who signed that letter, flipped to the other position because it's expedient for them. It's sort of amazing. But the current position on the left is the filibuster is racist. It's a Jim Crow relic. It's anti-democratic and it's blocking needed progress. And you see a lot of tweets out there saying the senators who supported the filibuster represent X million fewer Americans that sort of uh, delegitimizing not just the filibuster, but the Senate itself. Why are those arguments? Because uh, some people might say, oh, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem like democracy. Why, in your mind, are they not compelling arguments? 
Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, we have a constitutional system, right? We, we throw around the word democracy all the time, and I don't want to get into Mike Lee's lane here, but it's really important <laughs> to understand that we have a democratic republic on purpose. We have 330 million people on a continental nation, and there is no way you govern well if you try to do simple majoritarianism for 330 million people. And, and the public then changes its mind, understandably, because they'll be upset that people overpromised and underdelivered 12 or 18 months ago. So the next election, the, the majority will swing. The House of Representatives now changes majority basically every single uh, new presidential administration two years in. We've been doing this for 25 years, which is another way of saying the public is dissatisfied with incumbent politicians and good on them for that. Um, but what you want to do is have a laboratory of democracy, the founders said. So you get 50 different experiments. Government is usually going to fail when it tries to do something. And if you do a one-size-fits-all rifle shot all the time, you're just going to fail all the time and you're never going to learn something. If you do 50 states experimenting with different things, like local COVID protocols, for instance, they may all, almost all still fail, but they'll fail in different ways. And you can incrementally have the public better served by government that gets to learn from other governments. And so we divide power both vertically and horizontally. We distinguish, obviously, between legislative, executive, and judicial functions. But we also distinguish between state and local governance closer to the people than Washington, D.C. D.C. should only be the governance, government of last resort for things that can't be solved closer to the people so the people have more power to weigh in with their school board or their mayor or their roads department, etc. And so what you want is lots of different experiments. I obviously, representing a small state, which is why the Senate exists, which is how we got a constitution, the settlement between different geographies to create one federal system together, at least for the purposes of common defense. I the compromises. <laughs> there are some compromises there. Exactly. And we need to be devolving power back to, to uh, metro regions as well. So more cities can s solve transportation and housing policy problems. And so when, when uh, far leftist people on Twitter, and obviously we have some angry, rage addicted people on the right in social media as well, they always believe from their echo chambers that they will be a permanent majority. They're sadly mistaken. Only 14% of people are even paying attention to politics on a daily basis. And so we don't want simple majoritarianism in this country. We want compromise and caution about the things we do to at the national level and a lot of devolution to local levels to try to solve problems closer to the people. Hold that thought. More with Ben Sass, Republican senator from Nebraska, on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour after this. Guy Benson will be right back. We continue. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. And kind to stay with us for another segment is U.S. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, a Republican. All right, Senator, last question on this. Senator Sanders is very angry. Bernie's out there. I mean, he's always pretty grumpy, but he's grumpier than usual. He's out there uh, mad at cinema and mansion, and they're now threatening primary challenges and all this stuff. And what we're seeing on the left is grumbling in the press and that sort of thing that Mansion and Cinema wasted months of valuable time, which seems strange to me because they've been very consistent on this stuff. Isn't, isn't the criticism of wasting time better directed at the president and the majority leader who decided to look at the statements made by Cinema and Mansion, ignore them, and pursue this stuff anyway? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the idea that Bernie Sanders has a barometer for America is just delusional. Bernie should go to West Virginia and run against Joe. I mean, the idea that Bernie <laughs> Sanders could be elected hardly any places in the country is just a joke. And so obviously the problem here is that the president has turned over the White House administration and political team to far leftist people who spend their whole day on Twitter. And Chuck Schumer is scared to death of a primary challenge from AOC. And so he cowardly decided that it would be useful to try to blame 
Manchin and Cinema for the fact that Schumer and Biden didn't have any plan to actually lead a 50-50 Senate. The people who've wasted time here are far left crazies who sniff their own fumes. <laughs> last question on a more serious uh, geopolitical question. We just spoke last hour with Katie McFarland. There's this situation developing on the Ukrainian border. It seems increasingly likely that Putin is going to do something here. What should, in your estimation, Senator, the United States be doing now? And what would be the appropriate response if this invasion or incursion does, in fact, take place? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, the administration has gotten us way, way, way behind the curve. Um, obviously, the president basically gave Putin a green light to invade and didn't give our allies anything to take confidence in when he said the nonsense distinction about minor incursions, just yammering on about something that is, you know, an existential threat, not just to the Ukrainians, but to a lot of the, the post-war NATO order that we have. But the single best thing we could do right now would be to arm the Ukrainians to the teeth. Um, there are lots of people who want to fight for their freedom right there. And there are a lot of people in neighboring countries who know if Putin carves off another big chunk of Ukraine, I mean, he plans to take obviously a lot of the East. The question of whether he will permanently occupy Kiev is a is a debate that, you know, experts on this will debate. Um, but once Putin does that, if he does it, and it sure looks like he's going to, he's not going to then be pacified. He's then going to be stronger. And so if we recognize the the Chairman Xi threat against Taiwan and and the uh, Putin threat against Ukraine for what they are, they're an attack on a U.S.-led global order where there's free trade, human rights, transparent contracts, rule of law, navigation of the seaways. We got a big problem here. And, you know, I, I care about President Zelensky and the Ukrainians as freedom-loving people, but it's also a canary in the coal mine for much bigger autocratic attacks on a system of alliances among democratic capitalist nations. And so the single best thing we can do right now is arm the Ukrainians faster uh, to fight for themselves. But obviously, the Biden administration has projected weakness continually. And, and Putin loved the press conference this week. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, always appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Guy. Enjoy Austin. Have a good weekend. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today on the program, since we're here in Texas, why not have a member from Texas? And we did. Congressman Dan Crenshaw from the Houston area. He joined us. A lot to discuss with him, as always. Here's part of my conversation with Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. Yesterday was January 20th, a year prior Joe Biden was inaugurated as our 46th president of the United States. How do you assess year one of the Biden presidency? Well, I assess it like most Americans assess it, and it's not going well. Um, you know, he gave this press conference. He, he honestly just shouldn't give press conferences. He doesn't look well. Um, he's not able to answer these questions with, with any kind of authority uh, that gives the American people confidence. And there's, there's just been a long list of failures that's ex extremely hard to uh, defend. And what's even more frustrating is he gives himself a pretty good grade, as he says. But about 40 percent of Americans would give him a failing grade. So, you know, he began the, he began the year uh, attacking the Texas oil and gas industry, banning drilling on federal land that eventually got withdrawn by a judge. But they haven't really given any new leases. Um, you know, the production is still low, mostly because there's a chilling effect 
by this administration because the, the, the industry feels under attack constantly. They've closed down pipelines. They've threatened new taxes, threatened new regulations. And so you're not seeing the, the production able to catch up. Um, and of course, Biden turns around and says, well, we wish Russia would produce more. I mean, Russia, you know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, asking OPEC to do that. Um, they've created a terrible border crisis by by rescinding Trump's policies about almost two million encounters on the border in 2021. And um, and, and a huge majority of those are going uh, out into the uh, they're just being let loose out into the public. Uh, it, it's an absolute disaster. Inflation is almost seven percent. Uh, they reached they raced three years of real wage growth for American families because of this inflation. They failed to 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 to, to do anything about the supply chain issues that we face. Um, failed to address the spike in crime across the country, focusing in the FBI instead on parents who want to go to school, school board mm-hmm. meetings. Uh, of course, let's not forget the disastrous withdrawal of Afghanistan, which is now leading uh, authoritarians around the world to believe that they can do whatever they want. And now in putting us in very, very difficult foreign policy situations like we're seeing in the Ukraine and potentially Taiwan. Um, now, hey, on the good news, they're also really they're so bad at all of this that their agenda is failing, too. And the Build Back Better plan has basically died. Um, but we'll see what kind of things the, the Democrats attempt to resurrect in the Congress or what pieces of it. So all in all, pretty failing grade there. Um, yeah. Guy. And he's at 40 uh, percent approval roughly nationwide among independents. I was talking about this in the last segment, and then I happened to see a tweet that was looking at the average of recent polls among independents and Biden's. 30 points, almost 30 points underwater. His approval rating is 30%. That's a group that he won by 13 points in 2020. So there's been a lot of erosion there. And I wonder some of it probably has to do, Congressman, with just some of the incoherence from the president himself and the team. We watched that press conference. You said maybe you wouldn't advise him to do too many of those, but he had one on Wednesday. And During the press conference, he said something, for example, about Russia and the minor incursion that his team immediately had to say, well, no, no, that's not what he meant. He meant something else. And then he cleaned it up the next day. He also questioned the legitimacy of future elections. If the Democrats don't get their way on this crazy election takeover thing that they've tried and failed, he was very open to the idea and said, there's a yeah, it's absolutely possible that the elections may not be legitimate. And the vice president seemed to back that up the next morning. And then the White House quickly said, no, 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 that, that's not what he meant. That's, that, let's be clear. He, he meant the opposite thing of that. He also got angry at that same press conference when he was being pushed on the rhetoric that he used. Mr. Unity talking about, you know, Jim Crow and you know, Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor and all that stuff in the speech down in Atlanta. And he said, no, no, that's, that's not what I even said. That's not what I meant. He was shouting at the reporter. We all saw what he said. It just seems like the guy comes out, blurts things out, and then we're all supposed to just sit around and buy these revisionist cleanup, mop-up jobs by his team around him. That does not inspire confidence at all. Yeah, I think that's right. I think he doesn't know what he's doing. I don't think he knows what he really believes. I don't think this man has has very secured foundations or principles that would drive his thinking. You know, it's it's difficult to know what 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 he values, what his framework is for solving problems. One of the big reasons I'm a conservative is because conservatism, by definition, gives you principles by which with which you solve problems. Um, liberalism doesn't. And, and and Joe Biden himself, he's been an opportunist for forty plus years in politics doesn't know what he believes. And so he's willing to go along with whatever seems like the right thing to say, or at least what his progressive advisors are telling him. But it's 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 out of step with the American people. And so he says one thing. And, and look, he just 
he's just not able to communicate coherently. That's a big problem here. Um, and look, I, he is the leader of our country, and I want I want us to be represented better. Uh, which is why, which is why I made the comment. Maybe just don't go and do press conferences because you create more problems. You know, while it might be good for 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 Republicans politically when he does that, it's bad for the country. That full interview and all of today's show available online, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Producer Christine is back been a rough week for cookie we will recap with her the triumphant return mostly healthy we think that's next for the full interview and more go to guybensonshow.com home stretch guy benson show from austin texas thanks again to am 1370 for graciously hosting us today here on the program i'll be in new york early next week for some tv stuff GuyBensonShow.com, podcasts always free, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. So producer Christine has been out much of the week for various reasons. We will get to those in just a moment. But Christine, I do have some interesting little nuggets for you that you will find interesting, I think, about our situation here in Austin. The first of which is last night we got in past dinner time, so it was kind of too late to get a bite to eat. We ate on the plane. But it wasn't too late just to go grab a beer. And so we went right near our hotel, little place. They had a couple beers on tap. Some of Adam's friends who are in Austin came over to say hello. And I had, I think, just like a Kolsch. I had a a beer on tap, a draft beer. And they were a few minutes behind us. They came upstairs to where we were sitting. And would you like to guess what one of them had in hand that he had ordered at the bar? Ooh, uh, Cosmo? No, I'll give you a clue. We are doing the happy hour of the Guy Benson show. Uh, oh, a long drink. Finished long drink for the win. Wow. Oh, yeah, he's a big fan of it. We converted him. He's like a one-man army on behalf of long drink. All of his friends down here drink it. It's widely available. So that was cool just to, like... Whenever you see one in the wild, someone ordering one, that's like a pretty cool thing. So Adam got one. I took a photo. I sent it to our friends over at the Long Drink. That was pretty great. And then the other update is whenever dry January is finally over for you, and if you come to Austin, Texas anytime, you might want to stay at the hotel that we're staying at because they have between 5 and 6 p.m. Central Time, local time here, they have a wine hour where it's, Red and white, it's free on the house for all the guests. And they do this in a lot of their locations. But a special extra Texas twist, they also have free margaritas during the wine hour. So this is a pretty big thing. And because it's an hour earlier here, that means I might be able to get back to the hotel in time to maybe have one of those margaritas after the show today. Pretty stoked about it. Yeah. Keep rubbing that in, why don't you? I'm excited for you. You're almost done, right? You're just a few days away from being complete because we we said you get to count the days that you didn't drink in December and tag those on to your January. So you're very close, I think. Uh, You know what? I wouldn't even be surprised. I know this sounds shocking. I would not even be surprised if I don't wind up drinking right away 
even when I get to February, the thought of even any part of alcohol messing with my body or causing any harm or pain to my body. I just can't even think about it right now. So yes, I might so, just be off the hooch for a while. Maybe, maybe not. You never know. I think once you've recovered enough, it'll be time. But mm. you have had a bit of a difficult week here. You ended up at one point in the hospital and you were texting us, I'm going to the ER and hopefully you're willing to forgive me that I was not terribly concerned because most people, they text you, I'm going to the ER. It's like a real cause for concern. With you, I mean, you could stub your toe and be like, it might be cancer, and you rush to the ER. And you're a hypochondriac. You sort of panic about things. So I wasn't sure how concerned to be about this, but it did turn out this was an after effect of COVID. Brutal, brutal headaches. After you had all of your other symptoms, it's not been too easy on your body these last few weeks and I'm, I'm sorry how much better are you feeling finally i'm i'm definitely starting to feel a lot better i mean i'm functioning which is better than i was uh tuesday and wednesday the pain is still there but i found the right concoction of over-the-counter meds that are actually working but i do want to say one thing about the emergency room i know i'm a hypochondriac and i know that i often think, you know, the worst is about to happen. But I get to that point and I usually cry wolf and I've never actually act upon it. I just complain about it. I have to say I'm 40 years old and that was the first time I had ever been to an emergency room. Oh, see, that surprises me. Yeah, I know. I know. I get to that point of complaining, saying, you know, I'm so bad, but I never, I never go over the line. Um, that was only the second time I'd ever been in a hospital. The first time was having Megan. So wow. that's how bad the pain was that I had to go. I had never, ever stepped foot in an emergency room. Oh, see, so that's uh, some I, added context that I did not have before. That would have made mm-hmm. me a little bit more nervous. The fact that you weren't replying to texts for a while, that started to concern me. And so... I hope it's okay. I've I've deleted the draft of the eulogy I was working on for you. So I, I assumed <laughs> you would you would want me to do that. So I just took it upon myself uh, to start putting some thoughts together. But thankfully, it seems like that uh, will be unnecessary. But I'm I'm making a little bit light of it just to have a laugh. But it was not funny and not fun at all, and that really sucks. And we're glad that you're feeling better. But wow. I mean, the, it, the, it, when the COVID finally got you, it got you. Well, what I find so funny is when I actually had COVID, I worked. I never called out. And then the, 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 the long haul effect of COVID is what knocked me out. Right. It was afterwards um, do, with the headaches. Yeah. The headache. And I am sure I don't think people are talking about this enough, but the headache it's something I, I had never felt before. And let me tell you something. I've had the worst of worst hangovers. Um, oh, this, I believe it, that. It, that checks out. <laughs> this was unbearable. I mean, it literally felt like a knife was just stabbing me in the head. You couldn't Oof. get any relief. Nothing was working. And I don't think people are talking about this enough. Did you, um, did I, you hear our interview yesterday by any chance with Dr. Neshwat? Because I asked her about this. And she said, actually, some of these really pounding headaches aren't that uncommon. It's not something I'd really heard of until your situation. I did listen to it, and she was lovely enough to actually email me, you know, because I booked her before. I, I, 
have to say all the Fox News doctors, because I did email a couple of them, maybe all of them. <laughs> just, just like you know, CC all of them on one yeah, email. Uh, and honestly, they all had the same exact answer was get to the ER. This isn't great. Um, because mm. there is a potential for um, blood clotting. And that's why that my, my final, you know, get to the ER with my doctor, who has never once, and I call him, I have him on speed dial, never <laughs> once told me to go to the ER. Never he said once. It's, it's time. He said it's time. You got you to gotta get there and we got to, you know, get this scanned. And I'm not 100% out of the woods. Um, there might be an MRI in my future, but the scans that they did do, and, you know, they said there was no, you know, I didn't have the symptoms of stroke or anything like that, but... Yeah, it's scary, and I'm glad. I'm hoping all this is behind. January is just a blur to me. It's been a rough go with that. Well, Um, and then this other thing happened. (sighs) We had been talking on the air about how you had accepted an offer, and you were selling your house, and you were moving to the new apartment, and everything was turning up roses, at least on that front. Well, it turns out, ooh, false start. Yeah, the buyers backed out. Um, I think the last I had updated you and the audience was that they wanted a credit, I think of like $15,000 uh, after the home inspection. That wasn't supposed to be. Right, they had waived all this stuff, and then they said, well, never mind. We're going to do some stuff anyway. You didn't take kindly to that. They wanted credits. You said no, and they were just like, all right, we're done. Yeah, well, it took us forever to get them to give us an answer. Uh, we don't know what was going on. They were just waiting and waiting, and we were waiting. And finally, our lawyer contacted their lawyer, and they're like, yeah, no, we're actually not interested anymore. So it was just a whole waste of money and time, and we're back to uh, square one. And that doesn't help. But there's still a lot <laughs> of interest, you know right? A huge amount of interest. Um, I think she's actually showing it uh, next week. Or I, she she has a lot of interest. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, that's the least of our worries. Our health is our most important. And my whole family, we all got taken out with COVID for a while. So um, we just need to get back on track. I mean, it <laughs> sounds, uh, I hate to say it this way, but given all of that, it sounds like you actually could use a drink <laughs> it's a, bit, a lot of stress you would think, <laughs> you would think but i'm so scared to, I, I know this is crazy i am terrified to even have an alcoholic drink because of the amount of meds i have in me oh and i would i, I would wait i would definitely yeah, wait until you're off the meds to mess, i don't even want a, a thought that any alcohol could give me any sort of headache or anything like i am just scared I have to say this dry January was by far the easiest, but I'm going on record. I will never do dry January again. It right, because you blame all my health issues. Yeah, you blame dry January for all of this. Yes, it's happened before. I will never, ever do dry January You're done. Again. Okay, last question here because we're almost out of time. Did you go to that psychic before or after you went to the emergency room? I was worried you were going to ask me mm-hmm. this. I'm just curious. My husband, my husband asked me, he goes, how come... She didn't see you in an emergency room for the first ah, time in your entire life. So before, life. so you go to the psychic and she's got her stupid card. She's like, oh, you've lost someone close to you at some point. You're like, oh, my God, yes, my my dad. And she's like, yes, yes. But she couldn't see the hospital visit coming in a matter of days. Isn't that interesting, Christine? She also told me we were moving. So I'm hoping maybe, remember, she said later on. So she didn't tell me that <laughs> the deal was going to fall nonsense. through. <laughs> but, uh, I just want, I I want wanna, you to think on this. I just want to say one thing. Just one thing. 
while I was in that emergency room, I might not have responded to you, but I sure, sure did respond to Mitt Romney's people. So that's all I got to say. Yeah, about you that. Were, they text you or they email you and you're like on every medication possible laid up on a hospital bed. But you are willing to respond to a U.S. senator's team. They're going to come on. We had a great interview with Mitt Romney. So well done, Christine. Always working that cookie. She's relentless. <laughs> Did you did you perhaps fake all of this to get some sympathy bookings? Like you I like you reached out that. to all these people in your Rolodex being like, oh, I'm in the hospital. Can you come on? Seems like I wouldn't put it past you, actually. I'm not revealing any of my secrets. <laughs> you have no comment on that. All right. Fair enough. Well, it is the weekend. Happy weekend. One and all from Austin, Texas. I'm Guy Benson. As I mentioned, I'll be in New York early next week for Kennedy and Gutfeld and some TV fun. See you then. Talk to you then. Have a fantastic weekend and have a great night. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.